0: Hi, I'm Elena Joe and this is episode 12 of Big Picture Relationships. Imperfect people get things done. Today I'm going to poke fun at myself as I tell you two stories like metaphors where my own perfectionistic happy ending seeking nature almost ruined two beautiful experiences that became some of the most powerful lessons of my life. I'll talk about ways I learned the beauty of imperfection through the Broadway musical Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. And I'll give you my two biggest lessons that number one, imperfect people bring about their own sort of greatness and number two, imperfect circumstances can be a unique sort of beauty and give powerful life lessons. Thanks for being here. This is Big Picture Relationships with Elena Jo, a therapist sharing insights, ideas, and real-life pep talks that encourage you to expand your perspective, maybe shift some behaviors, and make the most of real-life relationships so you can live a happy life right now. I joined the Hamilton craze a year or so after it hit big time. But after hearing the haunting song of heartbreak called Burn, you should go listen to it. And Matt Lewis, I'm giving you credit for giving it to me first. I started seeking out the soundtrack. I wanted to piece together this heart aching story. And so, of course, given who I am, and we'll talk more about this another time. I was focused on the romance aspect of the story. I wanted to learn about what caused this epic heartbreak I came to love what I knew of Hamilton so much that I spread it to other people and I dug through my old emails as I was looking at this to remember what a geek I was about it and I found at least 10 different emails that I'd sent to people saying, oh my gosh, you have to listen to these songs. It's beautiful. Have you ever heard a love story? You know. So when I got a flight credit for getting bumped on a business flight, I used that money to fly myself to Chicago for about 20 hours and see Hamilton for myself, finally. Clearly, I knew that the musical was going to be so much bigger than what I knew so far. I'd purposely not researched the whole storyline. I only knew the songs that I knew and loved, and I was prepared to be surprised. But even with mentally preparing myself, I got to the play, and there he was. Alexander Hamilton, the dashing and masculine hero, was so powerful and had so much charisma. that two sisters were in love with him, and another woman seduced him, and he was not at all what I expected. In fact, he was the opposite. He was short. He was little. He was annoying. He was unattractive and socially awkward. And in his own words, right in one of the opening numbers, young, scrappy, and hungry. Scrappy is like the opposite of attractive and dashing. You know, everything I honored in a masculine hero, right? He was self-promoting. He was a social climber. He was loud, abrasive. People disliked him. He ruffled their feathers. All of these are things that I try extremely hard in my own life not to be. So they really bothered me at a deep level. Also, there was no romantic chemistry. All this like romantic storyline that I concocted in my head was ridiculous. In hindsight, there are five songs out of 46 in the whole entire play. But I had concocted in my head this, this happy, beautiful storyline that I envisioned. And what I got was so the opposite Of that, that I just couldn't even believe that anybody liked that little guy or that this play was so epically popular. I left the play. I was glad I had gone, but I also sort of regretted this adventure by myself across the country. I was pretty proud that I figured out how to take the bus at 3 a.m. in February in Chicago to get back to the airport. So, side note, Um, I came home, I set the Hamilton soundtrack aside. And because it wasn't beautiful, it wasn't what I expected, and it left me somewhat uncomfortable and a little unhappy. I don't know when, maybe a little bit later, as it grew more popular and some of my family started to listen to it, that I started listening again. And I started to listen to the other storylines in it besides the romance. I started to see this juxtaposition of Hamilton and Aaron Burr. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And anyway, this isn't a Hamilton episode, so I won't go on, but I started to see the art Of it. The way this fictional story, yes, I know that this is a fictional version of Alexander Hamilton's lifetime, so don't worry. (laughs) When I'm talking about Alexander Hamilton, fine, you can just assume that I'm talking about a play character here today. But I started listening to those messages, and the true genius of this work of art emerged for me. My digestion of the beauty amidst these varying storylines was helped by the PBS documentary called Hamilton's America. I don't even like documentaries, and I've seen it at least 10 times, so maybe that's hopefully a vote that you should go see it. You can only watch it if you have a PBS membership, so I even signed up for the $5 a month donation so that I could watch Hamilton's America. And during the year after I saw the play, I made a bunch of different groups of people watch me. Coworkers in hotel rooms when we were traveling and friends on a Sunday evening, so thanks to all of you that watched it with me. So go watch it. For the story's sake, to help you understand why I'm talking about this and what it has to do with imperfection, let me just give you a highlight of a few things that this little annoying guy, Alexander Hamilton, accomplished. He was the right-hand man to George Washington. Now, founding father of our nation, honored, revered. He was a great influence and support, like a big supporter of him was Alexander Hamilton. George Washington had shoes way too big to fill. And he relied on Hamilton and his support. Now, if you love George Washington, and even if you're never going to listen to Hamilton, you should go listen to the two songs that are George Washington's songs in the play. History has its eye on you. And One Last Time, you'll hear parts of George Washington's moving speech as he stepped down from the presidency. Now, people in the nation wanted him to remain president for life, but he voluntarily stepped away to prove to this new young nation that they could do it without him. And if you really want to feel the powerful punch that this song packs, get on YouTube and Google that, One Last Time White House, and you'll see the original cast sing it to President Obama. It's beautiful. It will bring a tear to your eye. But anyway, Alexander Hamilton helped George Washington write that speech. He was an active writer for so much of George Washington's greatness. Now, Hamilton was such a writer, he was obsessively writing everywhere he went. He worked nonstop, and part of his obsession with writing was creating 51 of the 85 Federalist papers. Now, the Federalist papers were essays published in newspapers and such to convince this newfound nation, these people who were understandably very wary of a big government, given the war they had just gone through, these essays were instrumental in convincing the people to agree to a central government with built-in checks and balances. You know, we think that winning the Revolutionary War was the biggest achievement of that time, but surviving the year's after the war and bringing vastly different groups of people together to form a united nation nearly brought us to the brink of defeat. Any of you who've ever been on an HOA board and can't even get 50 to a couple hundred people to agree on something? Now spread that out. Imagine that over 13 colonies all from all over the world and all you have is snail mail and speeches. You can see the difficulty. Of, seriously, picture that HOA board. It's the worst, right? Hamilton worked tirelessly to establish this new nation. He really devoted his entire life's passion to seeing the successful birth and stability of what everyone else had sacrificed their lives for. There's so many great lines I could quote here. I'm not going to. One, last one though. He says to his frenemy, Aaron Burr, Burr, we studied and we fought and we killed for the notion of a nation we now get to build. For once in your life, take a stand with pride. I don't understand how you stand to the side. Hamilton was so passionate about establishing this nation, he worked himself quite literally to the grave over it. He wounded his relationships. It nearly cost him his marriage. I imagine he was not a very involved father with the eight children he had. And his passion did not endear him to people during this lifetime. He was such a force for shaking things up that people continued to dislike him. They made fun of the way he dressed. They made fun of him behind his back. We had people, you know, trying to figure out how to get him away from Washington and stop giving him so much power. In fact, Thomas Jefferson stepped down from his role as a vice president so that he could run for president just to oppose the growing power that Hamilton had. There's a reason that this really dislikable guy, Hamilton, was challenged to at least ten duels in his life, and it's apropos that the final duel with Aaron Burr ended his life. The man died because he was so disliked that someone killed him. As I chewed on these ideas, you know, through beautiful poetic lyrics and the different types of relationships and people in the story, I began to digest a bigger lesson— A key figure in the play is Aaron Burr, who looks very polished and perfect. And compared to Hamilton, Burr is closer to what I want to be. I imagine what a lot of us want to be. He's all like shiny and pretty and agreeable and nobody dislikes him. But he accomplishes nothing. He's so wishy-washy in his agreeability and his perfection that he accomplishes nothing nothing. And I started to see that the very traits in Hamilton that made me squirmy, that I didn't like about him, were actually the same traits that drove his great accomplishments. In the documentary that I'm talking about, Hamilton's America, the original cast actors are shown sitting in the slave quarters at Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's home. It's really interesting to watch these beautiful people of color talking about the fact that these were great, amazing men who also owned people. And David, 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 I'm sorry, I don't know how to say it, Diggs, is is there saying it's very possible that somebody can be both awesome and amazing and they can totally suck. He was talking about Thomas Jefferson who owned a, a, a wealth of slaves. People aren't defined by their worst day or their worst trait or the worst thing they've done. In fact, a person can be both awesome and they can suck. So lesson number one for me in this whole Hamilton story I'm telling you is that imperfection and imperfect people with grossly awful traits can accomplish great things. And in fact, sometimes those imperfect and ugly traits can be the very birthplace of their greatness. There are so many leaders and figures and even people in our lives. I don't know. I'm picturing like religious leaders, old religious leaders, university presidents, politicians, any starter of a great company, somebody who's truly a visionary is a very imperfect and flawed person, whether they are a narcissist or a workaholic or a slave driver. You know, it's easy to write them off people you don't like, but think instead of the things they they can get done. What comes to mind for me right now is Tony Robbins. I've been listening to a few different podcasts and and things about Tony Robbins and I really enjoy it. He pumps people up. He is inspirational. I can also see why critics sometimes don't like him. You know, he talks about himself a lot. He talks about money a lot. He's very self-promoting. But does that make these awesome things that he's accomplished and the millions of people that he's touched, does that make all of that invalid and not accurate just because he's not perfect No, sometimes those imperfect traits are exactly what drives somebody forward. So who do you know that drives you crazy? Or there's just that one thing they do or that trait they have that drives you nuts. Does that have to define them or your relationship? Might you be able to see the silver lining, see through it to what their imperfection brings? Maybe you have a workaholic spouse. Maybe you have a creative and messy spouse. Maybe you have a stubborn or a strong-willed child Or a really creative, forgetful, messy child? Maybe you have a coworker with no personality, but they're dependable and super great with numbers. Do you see how? any of these people in their imperfections have strengths to bring and to give. You know, a workaholic spouse is providing for your family. A messy, creative spouse is setting a tenor for your home of fun and, and goodwill. Maybe your stubborn, strong-willed child is going to be just fine as an amazing adult. Or your creative, forgetful child is going to bring sunshine wherever they go. These things that are imperfections can also be great strength. And if you choose to get caught up in what they're lacking, like my discomfort with the storyline, In Hamilton, that didn't go the way I wanted it. Are you missing out on the great things that are getting done, on the great ways that this person does show up in your life? They can both suck and drive you crazy and bring greatness. Don't get so hung up on their worst traits that you miss the great ones. And even better, if we can accept imperfect people around us and see that their passions and what their greatness are, Doesn't that same charity bleed over to us? Number one, how they see us. But number two, how we can see ourselves. I bet you are imperfect. Sorry, guys. I know that I'm totally imperfect. There are things I'm terrible at, things you're probably terrible at. There are places we drop the ball, places we're not living up to our potential. So what? So what? Instead of trying to be all perfect and boring like Aaron Burr in the Hamilton story, what if instead we tried to be more like Hamilton? Hamilton. We can accept what we're not good at and just let it be part of us and instead emphasize the awesome parts of us. Emphasize what's good and great and that might just be the best way to go and the happiest way to live. To me, like from where I sit, even as a therapist, accepting the imperfections in life is probably the most realistic path to a real life sort of happiness here and now with yourself and with other people. Here's a me example. I don't enjoy cooking. I'm not good at getting like thoughtful home-cooked meals on the table for my family each night. And for years I felt bad about that. And I stretched and pushed myself and I'd make it happen. And even when I do cook, let's be honest, they're like the five ingredient type of soups or meals or you know spaghetti or grilled cheese sandwiches. So I have two choices here. I can choose to A feel lame about this and force myself to get better at it and do this thing I really don't like and feel bad that I'm not good at it, or B I can embrace that I'm awesome at other things and I nourish my kids through bedtime routines and wrestling and snuggling and ways that are not food and let my husband help and let Costco help <laughs> my life. So I'll tell you, I choose option B. In the last few years that I've done that, we're all so much happier. My life and my family's life is so much better for accepting this imperfection and rolling with it instead of fighting it and feeling guilty about it. So whatever that is in your life, whatever that imperfection, that thing you're feeling bad about and guilty about. If it's not hurting someone, figure out how you can focus on what you're good at instead. So remember this lesson number one, imperfect people can accomplish great things. And maybe accepting imperfections is easier than obsessing over fixing them so that you can be perfect. Spend your energy instead on getting better and doing more of the things that you are good at. Now you would think that this beautiful lesson sunk deep into my soul after my Hamilton experience, right? Well, I guess that the Broadway gods had another lesson in store for me, or they really wanted to drive this point home during my next musical obsession, which was shortly after that Dear Evan Hansen. Hopefully, many of you have heard that beautiful song, You Will Be Found. It's an uplifting message about how everyone matters. It's a boy giving a speech to his high school as they're trying to memorialize somebody who has departed this life, and it's, it will bring tears to your eyes as growing voices and volume and people add, and this phrase, you are not alone, and you know, we're all there for each other, comes up. It's so popular, my kid's school principal plays it over the announcements from time to time in an anti-bullying and kindness movement effort, and the whole soundtrack Mm, 75% of the soundtrack of Dear Evan Hansen has beautiful songs that are full of meaning and value and connection and all of this, this great movement that our society is making toward vulnerability and connection and authenticity and connecting with other people as the highest and most important thing. So I love that stuff. I devoured this soundtrack. I let it fill me up if you ever see me crying when I'm driving down the freeway, just know that I'm probably engrossed in Broadway songs. So I was so dying to see Dear Evan Hansen that when I had a work trip to Washington D.C. come up, I figured, nah, that's close enough to New York. So I flew to New York instead early, convinced my sister to join me. Here we are, walking into Dear Evan Hansen. My sister, who really knew nothing about the play, joined me. And we sat there in awkward, squirmy discomfort to have this beautiful play and moving songs unfold, only to find out that they are based on a lie. They're based on a relationship that was a lie. So the entire play is all these beautiful songs full of meaning and connection and value are building and relationships are improving and people are kinder to each other. You're simultaneously sitting with this awful feeling in your gut of waiting for the other shoe to drop. You are waiting that you know it's got to come out at some point. And will that awful revelation erase all the good things that have happened? This really brings to head an important question. Can something beautiful be based on something imperfect? Can something moving and amazing and uplifting come out of an imperfect foundation? in the specific context of this play, are any of those uplifting, growing kindness movements any less real, despite the fact that they were started with an imperfect catalyst? And even more importantly, could I, sitting there as the listener, the watcher, accept the goodness before me, accept these beautiful songs, these soul-fulfilling music and let in that light into my soul, while simultaneously holding the yucky feeling of its imperfection and its flawed foundation, and the discomfort of knowing that it all might fall apart at any moment it was so uncomfortable. I felt having these two opposites sitting in my soul at the same time where it was excruciating. I'm not gonna lie. So I left that play feeling a little discomfited. My Hamilton lesson clearly had not sunk in deep enough yet. And my cute sister, who didn't know anything about the play, probably left not enjoying it very much because it was almost more uncomfortable than it was beautiful to someone who had expected a happy evening of entertainment. Now, like my Hamilton lesson, over time as I sat with these conflicting ideas, in the same way that I needed to chew on them and digest them with my last Broadway musical experience, I started to realize that maybe the emotion-duality conflict was a major point or a hidden point. You know, remember like back in high school and middle school when we'd read novels and you think it's about one thing, but you really actually find this other hidden meaning underneath it? The bigger point for me, at least, is that messy, ugly, heartbreaking things can have their own sort of beauty. And very imperfect events and people can do great things. They can bring about great things while still being imperfect. What in your life is Imperfect. What feels like maybe there's another shoe waiting to drop? What in your life is imperfectly mixed with happy and hard things all at the same time. And can you tolerate the soul stretching ability to accept what's beautiful and uplifting and let it sit in your soul right alongside, right next to what's imperfect? Maybe you live in an apartment that's too small, or maybe you're in a house that's run down or your family's outgrowing it. Maybe you aren't in the relationship situation that you always dreamed you'd have, whether you have one or not. Maybe that's it's not at all where you pictured your life at this time. Maybe the neighborhood or the school or the job isn't the right fit for you. Maybe your health or your mental health feels like that thing, that shoe that might drop at any minute and turn everything wrong. Does that make your memories during this time of your life any less valuable? Are you powerful enough to take your imperfect circumstances and create beauty amidst them? Are you powerful enough to take that imperfect circumstance and create beauty amidst it? You might look back and think that was such a happy time or we came together as a family or I developed myself so much or we gained such important lessons and those can be beautiful even if they're not what you would have chosen for right now. So while lesson number one was about imperfect people, that imperfect people can accomplish great things, lesson number two here is that imperfect circumstances can still produce beauty. Imperfect circumstances, much like imperfect people, are a reality in life. Oh my gosh, how many of us live like this perfect circumstantial life that we, you know, it's everything we ever dreamed and wanted. The goal in my mind is not to rid ourselves of imperfection, which honestly for most of my life it was. And if I don't check myself, I start getting in this mindset that's like, well, if I can just get good at everything and rid myself of everything uncomfortable, then I'm going to be happy and life will be blessed and it'll be fine. But I'm really through these lessons and others deciding that the goal in life is not to rid ourselves of all imperfection, but to make sure that the good things, the beautiful things, the happy things, the inspiring things. Make sure that those outweigh the imperfect or the bad and the ugly. And you know what? That's a perspective thing. That doesn't mean I have to go out and suddenly start gathering all these beautiful things. It means I have to switch my perspective to find them and to notice them. If you walk into life the way that I walked into both of those plays expecting it to look like one shiny pretty way, You will likely feel in your life the same way that I felt in those plays, squirmy, unhappy, dissatisfied, like something was wrong or this cognitive dissonance was there because it wasn't what I expected and it was not a good feeling. But if you can open up your perspective to see the unexpected beauty, to find the unexpected benefits of some contrast in your life instead of like this clean, shiny, bright picture, And notice the ways that those imperfections or those weaknesses or even those ugly things can actually be beneficial to creating a robust and an interesting life. A shiny, clean, and perfect life might actually be kind of boring. And if that's what you wanted, you're not going to get it anyway. So if you can switch your perspective to accepting those imperfections and seeing the beauty of them, you are on your way to a much happier path. So I won't say this a million other ways. I'm sure this is long enough. So let me sum it up one more time. First Imperfect people bring their own sort of greatness. Their imperfections, the things that drive you crazy, might actually be awesome in other circumstances and accomplish amazing things. And that means us too. We have imperfections and yucky things about us, and we can either turn those to our benefit or we can just decide to accept them and emphasize all of our great traits instead. Number two, imperfect circumstances can be full of a unique beauty powerful lessons and silver linings that you don't see if all you're focusing on is how unhappy you are with that imperfect circumstance. And both of these lessons lie in your power because it is your perspective that you choose to take in how you view these imperfections. Thanks for being with me here today. May we all go out and celebrate imperfections. Do you have a happy hack for me? Send it to me. I want to know. I'm going to run out of these at some point, you guys. So I'd love to hear what you do. You can email me hello at elanajo.co or find me at bigpicturehappy on Instagram. So today's happy hack, though. My kids love to hang things on the walls, and I do not love holes on my walls or tape residue on my wall. So I keep a good wad of sticky tack or sticky putty, whatever you want to call it, on hand all the time. It's in the cupboard above my desk. And my kids regularly come to me and say, can I have some sticky putty? They love to celebrate. My kindergartner especially hangs up things that he's made at school and they all are lined up by his bed with so much pride. So let your kids celebrate what's unique to them, hang it up on their walls. You as a parent... Or you as a human, hang up things that are important to you on your wall. My closet is a great place because I'm kind of minimalist. I don't like a lot of clutter around, but I have lots of space in my closet to hang up old pictures, to hang up little notes from my kids, and having that sticky putty around makes it really easy. Thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you next time. Visit www.elenajo.co for show notes and random photos, along with any handouts mentioned in this episode find elenajo.co on Instagram for daily big picture reminders and join the big picture email list for an occasional pick-me-up in your inbox from elena joe thanks for joining us